Now streaming exclusively on Disney+. When you wish upon a star. Disney's Pinocchio. Starlight, star bright. First star I see tonight. From the studio that brought you Beauty and the Beast. I wish I may. I wish I might. And starring Tom Hanks. Have the wish I wish tonight. Disney's Pinocchio. Only on Disney+. Plus. Now streaming. 18 plus subscription required. T's and C's apply. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Singh, your host for season two of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. You've joined me for a bookshelfie episode in which we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five brilliant books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfie. We are still practicing safe social distancing, so this podcast is being recorded remotely. And today's guest is Grace Dent, the broadcaster, writer, and one of the most recognizable and unique voices on the British food scene. When she's not putting together her must-read restaurant reviews, she's writing books, and her latest one, Hungry, a nostalgic food memoir, is out October 29th. She was also one of the Women's Prize judges in 2015, the year Ali Smith took home the prize for How to Be Both. Welcome to the podcast, Grace. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun to be doing something um, to do with with the Bailey's Book Prize. I haven't uh, the Women's Prize. I haven't thought about it for a while. So doing this podcast, bringing back all the memories of all sitting the memories. at that <laughs> sitting sitting at that table with uh, Shami Chakrabarti and who was else was that Laura Laura from Everyday Sexism. It was it was a good time. It was a good time. Uh, I always find judging book prizes uh, I always think that the most exciting part and the most joyous part is when you say yes mm. and then the books begin arriving in boxes and boxes and boxes and you wouldn't you suddenly uh, realize the the gravity of the task <laughs> right so how intensive was it because this is what I can never wrap my head around that the yeah. judges have to read so many books <laughs> mm. well the, yeah I'm and at first to get it feels like a an amazing exciting challenge and you're going to be incredibly organized and do 10 a week and whatever and you, and then life gets in the way and it does become very stressful so you're reading uh continuously you know you're reading the moment you open your eyes and when you're going to bed and everywhere uh you feel a massive weight on your shoulders because the moment you know you we're only human and you often get 15 20 30 pages into a book and think I really don't like this but you also mm-hmm. know that you have to you kind of have to carry on you know right. so uh yes and uh yeah I mean I, I was very proud to do it and uh but it was it was uh it was exhausting <laughs> but it was a massive it was a massive treat as well so I, I mean, know. it sounds like a huge challenge. <laughs> it was, I'm trying to, I think as I, as I speak about it, it was painful pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of, sometimes the experience of reading a good book can be a very painful pleasure. Well, I I mean, I think I, some of the books I've chosen to speak about today, I, uh, I, I, I definitely, I recommend them, but they are painful. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really painful topics and... Um, ones that that really stuck with me afterwards about you know about divorce and uh sexual appetite and uh, parents and so yeah I think the best books probably do leave a scar so the first book you picked was a book that I hope you weren't hurt and wounded by as a child it's the magic faraway tree by Enid Blyton yes yes like I um I just have an uh, a real Uh, a a kind of a joy in my heart when I think about being a little girl and uh, living in Curragh in Carlisle and sitting in the the bedroom that I was sharing with my little brother at the time. So I was very young and getting hold of that book. It's the second in the series. Uh, It's the Enchanted Forest 
series. And the second book is The Magic Faraway Tree. It's the it's the story of as all good children's stories, it's it's always about bored children who find something to something fantastic to 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 you know to make their summer holidays wonderful. They go into a forest and they find a strange tree and they climb the tree and uh, they not only is it strange and, and and filled with strange fruits and strange people, they then realize that the final rung of the ladder is uh an ever moving land that the land changes all the time and they have they crawl up the ladder and the challenge is to go in and enjoy the land and then get out before the uh, get out before the the land moves on because you'll be trapped now there's something about that even that idea that notion that's still now in my mid-40s makes me giddy (laughs) You have to get down this ladder before everything changes again. I don't know where there's, I think there's a, almost like a parable of life in there, you know, about partying, about getting to, you know, anything that's too good and too giddy and too wonderful, whether it's getting in with a crowd of people or, you know, starting to really enjoy a nightclub or whatever, you have to leave, you have to leave before it takes you over. And that's, um, and that's the... That's the whole. That's the whole point of the book. I'm, I'm, I, have you read it? Have you? Did, did you read any Enid Blyton at all? So I did read Enid Blyton, but now you know, looking back on it, I just remember there was a lot of stuff in there that maybe wasn't the best to teach children. You know, like the mums are always <laughs> relentlessly cooking and baking for the dad who's just absent, yeah. which you know, yes. in 2020 feels a little bit like oh, this is of its yeah. time. Um, yeah. But I did not read the Magic Faraway Tree. I think that you know, e- yeah, Enid Blyton is is very much um, of of its time, portraying uh, a certain type of uh, you know thirties, forties, fifties childhood that was in yeah, for, you know, fathers, especially at the cl- you know the class of people that Enid Blyton wrote about. I think that the fathers were quite absent. They were mm. they 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 set off every morning and you know, in a, in a with a bowler hat and an umbrella and they set off to the city and women were quite bored and, you know, cooked and waited for them to come home. I mean, I, do, I don't think that, you know, Enid Blyton didn't ever really, uh, really try. She, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't a, a greatly, a great modern person. I think she was quite stuck in, in her ways. I didn't really enjoy uh, The Famous Five and The Secret Seven. This is it with, I'm not a, uh, I was thinking before I started speaking to you. You know, am I a massive Enid Blyton fan? No, I don't think I am. Mm. I don't. I was. I was left very cold by Mal- Mallory Towers uh, as a child because I went to a, I went to a you know a state school and nobody I knew ever went to boarding school and it it was just a completely so to me the idea of you know first term at Mallory Towers it didn't excite me right I, I didn't have uh you know amazing adventures in the summer holidays where we you know sailed down rivers and solved crimes it was <laughs> didn't really excite me I but the magic faraway tree for me I think that it opened my eyes to fiction like nothing had done before. I I definitely read uh, this th- this book before I got my hands on Roald Dahl. Now I will argue that I think that anything that she achieves in the Magic Faraway Tree, uh, Roald Dahl in his books in James and the Giant Peach and Danny, Champion of the Universe, Champion of the World. I always get that wrong. Um, and you know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think that he I think he nails that emotion. Far, far better. But I, I do love this idea in in the, the Magic Faraway Tree where that you know they go up, they go up into the, the land where you can grab anything, you can have anything you want, and oh, that there's a woman, uh, that like Mistress Slap, who's like always hitting children. There's like a there's a definite macabre aspect to this book that I re- I really really love. But I mean, I argue continually that children's books should be a bit spooky and they should be a bit frightening and the idea that you know I know that in the in the latest editions of the magic faraway tree they've changed mistress slap to mistress snap 
<laughs> so she's okay. only allowed to right. she's only allowed to shout and I think although I can see why we've done that I think that the point was she was meant to be terrifying mm. and actually slightly unhinged So what was your childhood like, you know, growing up in Carlisle? Um, um, well, I, uh, you know, I think that, f- you know, for for my background, uh, I think that I possibly had the happiest version of it that I could. You know, I was, I I had a mum and I had a dad and they were, they, they you know, they argued a lot, but they loved each other. And we were never hungry i'm not saying that we ate the greatest foods in the world you know we i kind of grew up on the contents of the freezer and <laughs> and wimpy uh, but i was i was very very happy you know i like my my father was uh, again you know he wasn't a perfect man he was a very very symbolic of the 70s very 70s dad i don't think that you know he he didn't he didn't really say very much he was quite a quiet person and just wanted to sit in his chair and read his newspaper but um you know I I I do kind of I think that I did have quite a good time you know I lived on a I lived on a terraced road a terraced street with you know tons of different children loads of different children we played out continuously we played out on the fields and um you know played out on the called old abandoned allotments and um, you know, I went to a very, I went to quite a religious school, so it was quite tub thumping. Mm-hmm. I went to brownies, a very, very uh, typical seventies and eighties northern working class childhood. I, um, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know that anything else existed. It was only when I got to London years later that I realised that there was any really any kind of uh, there was anything else available there was there was Mm. any other marked class difference so uh so I can't say that I you know I didn't spend my childhood thinking it wouldn't it be wonderful if we were incredibly rich and I was at boarding school because I don't I you know these things didn't it was only when it was only in later years that I thought maybe we were slightly hard done to Mm. (laughs) but then but then you went to university and you studied your second book that you've picked, which is Restoration by Rose Tremaine, who also won the Women's Prize, actually, for The Road Home. Yes, she she did. She did. That was, that was absolutely, and I loved that book as well. Uh, so Rose Tremaine, Restoration, was one of the first books on uh, one of my first reading lists at, at the University of Stirling when I got there in 96. And, sorry, 92, 1992. God, that was so long ago. I got there and I didn't much like the look of this book by its cover I think it had uh, I think one of the first editions had uh, Charles II a picture of Charles II on the front or somebody someone mm. in, in in a Charles II curly haired style and I just thought oh god she does a really historical fiction was not my bag and then I began and I've always loved this book it's so vividly brings to life the idea of the restoration period in London, which I've gone on since then to, uh, I, I, I love the Tudor period. I love the restoration periods. I, I love um, the, the Stuart dynasty. I'm, I've got, I got really, really into history. The, the older I got, it really brings it vividly to life. It's a book about a man who has been, uh, very in at court, very part of the in crowd, and is then cast out, and uh, for you know some faux pas, and about his time, kind of fighting his way to get back into the love and the affection of the king. And it's it's but it's it's a book which I've always said as I've lived in London for the last twenty five years. You see this pattern being repeated again and again anyway you know there's like the the idea of people who want to be close to the royal family or want to be close to be to celebrities and you know being in being in the in crowd and being in the out crowd and being cast out and no longer in favor this is something that's just going on in Soho now you know this is something that's just going on in Primrose Hill right this moment you know this is you know people that you know, want to be close to in the Kate Moss's crowd or want to be close to, 
you know, Harry and Meghan. Or it's it's a parable about what is actually important in life and um, and and about personal discovery and uh, you know, there's themes about mental illness and um, uh, bedlam. It's the bedlam is in that the actual old original bedlam of people being treated for mental illness mm. is in there. So there's a lot of it, you know, it it looks at that and the idea, the the fragility of of your mental health, and I just love this book. I, what I find funny about this though is I, I really think that I've given this book to so many people, and I've never ever heard anybody come back and say, "God Grace, I loved that book." Really, and it, not once, and it, it makes me laugh because it it makes me it it so underlines how uh how books just present themselves so differently to different people you know you you can love a book love it with all of your heart but it'll leave other people cold mm. and um and i think this book does i think rose tremaine's work some people absolutely adore it you know i love music and science i've read you know i read everything in the end by Rose Tremaine and ended up writing a dissertation about her in 1996. And I think I was pretty much the f- one of the first people to ever write a dissertation. Like, I can't remember. I think at the time, nobody else had. Don't know if anyone else does now. And I remember then just feeling very much on my own in my love of of Rose Tremaine and what she achieves. She's She is one of our greatest British authors and I don't know why she's overlooked you know she was writing you know with an issue like you know like a trans, trans issues she was writing you know writing about that in 1995 she was you know churning out fantastic novels about that whole idea she's just very very ahead of her time and can suddenly you know pull out like a, an incredible book about the state of London in modern day and then suddenly go back and write something about, you know, the, the, the 15th century in China. I don't know I don't know how she does it, but she is, she's the real deal for me. She is the real deal of, um, of how to be an author. I know. I looked up um, the plot of Restoration because I actually read The Road Home, um, which is a 2008 Women's Prize winner. And... I was like, is this the same author? This sounds so different. Because The Road Home is about a Polish migrant who moves to London and gets on a down and out and ends up working in a restaurant, actually. Mm, And it could not be further from, you know, a courtier who gets kicked out of the royal court. You you never know what she's going to do. She's got um, a a new one out right at the moment. I noticed this. She's, She's prolific. She just never seems to stop having a book out which is to me again a massive you know a massive feat because you know I write one book and I need to go and lie in a darkened room for (laughs) a year at least Uh, so she's got one out at the moment and I could not tell you I couldn't even guess what it's about. So you studied this book at university and I know that was also when you started writing for Cosmo magazine was that your first kind of taste of journalism? Um Am I the the first time I I felt as if I was properly writing? Uh, I think was at was at university. I I wrote for uh, a fanzine for uh, a while called uh, Mental Block, and uh, had just had a load of fun writing that, and you know got into all kinds of trouble, and then started to I wrote for the student newspaper for a while. I I've never really felt like a journalist to be quite honest mm-hmm. I I, ne- I I never wanted to be a journalist I haven't I haven't um I haven't I haven't got a, a passion for facts and recording and bearing witness in a way that my friends who call themselves journalists have you know the I, I investigative reporting is I think an incredible skill me I don't think that's me I think that I am more um I I'm I'm very good at uh, absorbing what's absorbing what's going on around me um and being able to uh, spew it back out in an informative and funny uh, and moving way, I think that I'm. I think I'm a good writer. 
uh, and I'm a, I'm definitely a good creative writer. I'm very dis- descriptive, and I can make people feel things. But um, if you sent me to report on a cat that stuck up a tree, you probably wouldn't get the facts about even where the tree properly is. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> what kind of cat it is. I drive I drive my small team who look after me uh, for The Guardian. I drive them slightly mad because they, uh, you know, they, they have to sub my copy. And whenever I describe where a restaurant even is, they literally have to get my map coordinates and double check it because I'm, I'm awful for just putting it in the wrong county or whatever. So I, I like to say that I'm an artist and I'm allowed... <laughs> I'm allowed to be artistic um, uh, and it's it, I've got away with it so far. That's that's <laughs> all my that's all my career plan has often been to just get away with it for as long as I can. <laughs> it, serves, it serves you very well so far. <laughs> <laughs> just keep getting away with it and making sideways steps into uh, uh, into where you kind of want to be. You know, I'm always right. I'm always very conscious um i always have been that media and all the different facets of it whether it's you know appearing on tv or presenting or writing or reviewing or whatever it's so things move so fast they're so fleeting you can have the thing that you do snatched away from you very quickly because it suddenly goes out of fashion so i like to uh always have different irons in the fire and uh and, and and also do things that excite me if it stops you know I wrote about television for a long time mm-hmm. and then I I, it, I just wasn't I wasn't feeling it anymore I really wasn't I wasn't feeling the love for it so I I got out before it started to make me sad so I do I I, I you know I'm a big believer that we we only have one life and you can't uh, don't let don't go up a cul-de-sac mm. you climbed down the ladder of the magic faraway tree before it was <laughs> yes. too late yes I definitely I think I've got you know being yeah absolutely bang on I I've got out of a lot of different magic faraway tree lands before the before it moved on <laughs> <laughs> and sat for, and, and 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 got back down the ladder and sat and waited for a new land to come that's perfect that's exactly why i love the book <laughs> this podcast is made in partnership with bailey's irish cream bailey's is proudly supporting the women's prize for fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream, or paired with your favourite book. So the third book you picked was Kinflix by Lisa Ulther. Okay. Kinflix by Lisa Ulther, I always, in my heart, think is the book that I shouldn't have been reading. Right. It's, uh, it's, I'm not going to put a fine point on it it's filthy it's <laughs> it's a filthy mucky grubby it's it's also an incredibly clever erudite book written by uh, a woman in the i think it was out in about 1977 and it's uh, it's an american book uh a female writer lisa alther it's a book uh, a, f- a kind of a first person book about uh, a woman going back to her hometown to look after her mother uh, who is uh, elderly and sick and going around various places from her old life and thinking about the uh, about her rite of passage about the sexual things that happened about the the sex she had and then when she went away to uni thinking about the sex she had there and you know it's about uh, it's about 60s 70s american female feminist sexual enlightenment it's uh, uh it's about uh it kind of came out at, at the same time as like Erica Young and this whole idea of women actually uh being able for the first time to to kind of be filthy to to talk about you know masturbation and uh you know I'm wondering how blue I can be on this Oh you can podcast. be as blue as you want <laughs> <laughs> It was I well I just remember that obviously you know I I think I read it 
when I was say eleven. I got hold oh, of it wow. at a car boot. <laughs> I got hold of it at a car boot sale. I always say that I went very quickly from reading the magic faraway tree to reading Kinflix with no in the middle. You know, I I didn't come from a house where there was tons and tons of books or a reading plan or teachers that really thought about young adult books that this was, you know, the 70s or the 80s. Really, kids read children's books and then they were just set free at a car boot sale or a, or a jumble sale to pick up what they wanted without any supervision. And I got hold of, I would read Jackie Collins and Jilly Cooper, which were raunchy enough. And then I got hold of Kinflix. And it's not like I didn't probably know about sex and the facts of life by 11, because like now I went to a school where the kids did, but I never heard of sex like this because you know, suddenly she is talking about masturbation and vibrators and she goes, uh, you know, she loses her virginity in a car or definitely does something in a car. She goes off to university and discovers radical feminism and gets into a same, you know, gets into a lesbian relationship. And my, I think my head nearly fell off at this point. <laughs> I think I remember, you know, reading this book. By the time I'd got to this part in the book, I was so terrified that somebody might find out and take this book off me because obviously we're talking about a time before the internet where, mm. you know, you, the, you know, anything that was fantastic and exciting was so precious because you couldn't see it or hear it any, anywhere else. So I do remember this book being underneath my, my mattress and being terrified that my mother would take it off me and she never knew that she never knew about this book. The funny thing is with my mother now, she's uh, now 84 years old. And sometimes when I remember something like this, now I ring her up and I taunt her. I say, I'm going to tell you something. And she just roars with laughter. <laughs> Getting back to Kinflix. Yes, I, I've tried to read it since and I've kind of went, okay, so there's a bit of talk of, you know, if you don't, give someone a hand job they get blue balls and there's a bit of talk you know she goes to it's really interesting you know she goes to this kind of not a kibbutz but kind of radical feminist outpost and I think she gets oral sex off another woman and <laughs> to me in my mind I was like this was the like the raunchiest uh, yeah. I, but but now I look back and I go okay the point of that was that she was very confused and she didn't even really know whether that was she was a lesbian and the point was that she then goes on to get married to a man and it's a, it's it I think that all books that move you when you're young you should go back and look at because you'll often find that the story wasn't the story that you thought mm. but when you're <laughs> 11 you get so transfixed with oh you know, my the fact gosh. you're actually reading it something about it in print that it just blanks out every single literary intention ever completely Completely. I um, I think that, you know, it kind of makes me sad sometimes when I think that uh, that younger kids now, because they live in, you know, such a kind of an easy, porn-saturated landscape, you know, you do, you, you kind of think, do they have these kind of formative moments? Do they have that anymore where, you know, they get hold of just this one thing and they're like, oh my God. It's, you know, I, I don't know whether that happens. And I don't also, when I have this debate in my own head, I don't even know what side I'm on. Is it better to be the way it is now or should we mm. go back? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like before the advent of the internet, if you ever came across a remotely X-rated thing, it would be like that scene from Indiana Jones when they open the treasure chest <laughs> and your face just blasts <laughs> off. <laughs> exactly that. You know, I lived in a house with, um, you know, my mother was incredible. My mother used to fillet my bedroom. You know, she used to <laughs> literally go through my, when I, my, my dad in the end said to me when I was about 13, he said, you just stop keeping a diary. Just stop writing it all down. Like, just stop it. It's like, I, he's like, I come, my, I get in from work. I do not want to have your diary read to me <laughs> and I was like 
what? So I always remember that conversation because he was basically saying, look, you know, you're entitled, you're entitled to a private life. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's really tempting of parents to kind of want to step in and know everything. But I, you know, I, I think that at at a certain point you are kind of, you're entitled to to be embarrassing and to do embarrassing things Mm. and to, and to, you know, to, to, to be in love and to be infatuated and to think about sex. And so sometimes parents don't need to know everything about their children's sexual urges. I honestly look back when I think of myself as a teenager and I was so self-important and obviously obsessed with the fact that I was experiencing everything for the absolute first time. Just thought I knew it all. And I think my mother Mm. must have been like, oh, babe, you don't know anything. Yes. I, I, um, I think that it's one of the greatest you know, greatest, most painful things that you cannot talk to teenagers about anything. You really can't, you know, you, you can try, you can hint. But when I talk to the teenagers in my family, I, I, I can, I, even with the best one in the world, you can feel them really doubting that you could possibly know (laughs) what they're, what they're going through. You know, and I, I, you know, I've spoken to them, you know, about you know, being dumped and being kind of, uh, you know, being ghosted isn't a new thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or somebody saying that they're madly in love with you at Friday night and then by Monday ignoring you in the corridor. These things are not a new invention. It's not. So it's, it's I, I do find it interesting when I try to, trying to get through to teenagers is, is just impossible. Their, their brains are, 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 it's absolutely a, a completely mad jelly frequency. I'm really, I, I don't regret not having children. I don't, I just don't regret it. <laughs> I see all my friends right now and they're kind of ashen faced. And I think, no, no, I'm okay. Not for me, thanks. Not for me, no. <laughs> so the fourth book you picked was Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mendo. Mando, yes, sorry. I absolutely bloody love this book and I wanted this book to win the women's prize the year that I was judging I it was it was a book that I think I got about 45 pages in and I was like I don't you know I don't (laughs) this is it I have found the book I have found it and I I think I was incredibly uh outraged that I did it get in the long list I think it maybe got the long list if it did get into the long list, it was because I really fought for it. This is a, a book about, uh, it's a dystopian book, which is not my bag. It's it's not, is it sci-fi? Kind of sci-fi? Is it sci-fi? It's I mean, definitely not the type of book that I would ever have picked up. It's, uh, I mean... God, this, it's a book about the, can I, what can I give away? Yes, I can kind of give away that it's, it's about the earth being taken over by an incredible flu, you know, so it's, it's very prescient. Yeah, (laughs) it's, and I mean, that's all very, that's all quick. It's about the world kind of healing and rebuilding again. And I, um, it's very surprising. It's it, it's 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 about if if you had to begin again, if the, if the Earth did actually have to begin again, you know, you know what we know now with COVID. If the absolute worst had happened and thousands and thousands, millions and millions and millions of people had gone, and there was only a very small amount of us left, and we didn't ever get internet again, we didn't get electricity again, and you know all the things that we feared happened, what actually would be important. Um, and what would end up being, you know, what, what, you know, there's strange things like what, you know, everybody that was left in the airport, in the airports, mm. if they just, if they just ended up setting up home there in 50 years time, what would airport world be like? And if we could never have credit cards again, how would you explain credit cards to children? And there's thousands and thousands of tiny ideas like this. It's an incredibly difficult book, I think, to communicate to people that it's actually fun and joyous and it's very, very cerebral. It's not a sci-fi book. This is a 
um, not that they aren't not cerebral, but it's it's a very it's a book about Shakespeare. It's a book about art. Like what art would survive after this? What would we still would theatre groups survive? Does theatre really heal? Does art heal? Um, you know, the, one of the characters spends a lot of the book going around looting houses in a lovely way, a lovely gentle looting because no one's <laughs> left. There's no one there anymore. You know, what what would you spend the rest of your life getting into houses hoping to find? You know, would it be certain types of medication? Would it be, would you always look for, what? Well, whose books, would, if, if books were never printed again, whose books would you go and always try to find? And uh, if if society broke down, what would be the new religions that would come out? And I just think that this book, um, and it's not a very long book. It's not, it's, it, I just think it's, it achieves so much in such a short amount of space. Uh, it's incredibly moving. I didn't want it to end. Uh, I, I just think that it's one of, this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. I mean, it sounds especially relevant right now. Mm, I know, it's it's one of those that, I think it might be hard to get people to read it harder now than it's ever been. You know, she's, she's, people are not in the mood. <laughs> Do you think people have corona fatigue? They are, they are not. I mean, the, the, the illness that she creates and without trying to give too much away, because I mean, it isn't really a book about this, but the illness is, um, a, it, the, the book begins with uh, at one of the characters watching uh you know broadway watching a watching a play and one of the main characters on stage just dying on stage and it all kind of of this illness and then the kind of panic as you you begin to realize that this kind of almost you know this life ending thing is just wiping everybody out who you know and then it goes from there uh it's just wonderful I was going to ask, you know, do you think readers have COVID fatigue? I mean, you're a writer. I'm presuming you have to mention, you know, the big C word in reviews nowadays. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I don't think it's 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 something that people necessarily are running into, going to be, going to be running into the bookshops thinking, I need to read people's. Uh, people's views on COVID. I, I, I think that we're so bombarded by it. I'm not saying that there will be some fantastic fiction and some fantastic art that comes out of it, there will. But as I say, I think that people are uh, are very saturated by mm. it. I felt when I was, you know, I was, I was still putting the finishing touches to Hungary at the, uh, right in the, right in the middle of was going into lockdown. And uh, and I really thought long and hard about rerouting the book uh, and making it all about, you know, having to gather food in the end chapters, having to gather food for my mum, who I was, uh, she was in isolation. And, and and then I stopped and I just thought, you know, there, there will have been a thousand think pieces about this. Mm. <laughs> like a thousand think pieces. And... If this book comes out by, you know, it, we didn't know if it was going to come out. I mean, I was I was very much one of the authors that, first of all, all of our books fell off the schedule, and then suddenly, one of the publishers, like like a game of uh, poker, one of the, or a game of risk. I don't know whether whether it's which one. One of the one of the publishers then suddenly released a list of what they were putting out, and then everybody put their books out, <laughs> and then there was seven hundred books coming out I um I I I in my heart I thought that if if my book is coming out at Christmas in October you know in the run-up to Christmas what would I want to read and I I want to I want to laugh this is what I want to do right now I want to laugh so uh and I want to think about very I want to think about a world before Covid uh which is uh happy times basically exactly I want to I don't I almost don't think that I'm ready right now to think about everything we've lost as well mm. because it only hits me it hits me every day what we've lost it hits me you know our our personal freedoms and our trust in each other and the people that we may never see again because they're too scared to leave the house and 
uh, you know, we're coming, you know, as I, as we talk now, we are in the run up to Christmas 2020, which I think the pennies beginning to drop yeah. for people that Christmas dinner may not be happening. Mm. As you think, uh, New Year's Eve parties may not be happening at that that great homecoming that you're having it may not happen this year or next year so I do I, you know I was very very determined to write something funny <laughs> and give us a brief idea of what your book is about well it's uh, it's a memoir but it's you know it, it it's a it's a kind of a memoir it's it's definitely about memories I say at the beginning that uh, it's about my memories of how I see growing up and how I became uh, a little working class girl in Curragh eating Finder's crispy pancakes and the contents of my mum's freezer and, and butterscotch angel delight and uh, only really knowing cheddar cheese and, you know, quite limited, quite a limited mm. diet to being the restaurant critic for The Guardian and spending my life in Michelin star restaurants. How do you, how did I go from one place to the other? So hungry is about my appetite and it's about my hunger. And it's also about my hunger for, uh, for success and to leave and to, you know, to move to London and to enter the world of media and do all the things I did. It's really also a book about my father and uh, the journey I've been on with him over the last 10 to 12, maybe even 15 years with his uh, decline. I've lost him completely really now with dementia. And it's, it's, so it's about that stage in my life. So it's uh, as he loses his memories, me thinking about uh, my childhood and my teen years. And um, it's, I'm absolutely determined, you know, it's it's kind of a funny book, but yes, there is, you know, we, I do talk about dementia in it. So yeah, uh, dementia and pot noodles, that's the book. <laughs> Put that on the front cover. <laughs> dementia, you know, I think that the the publisher has a tagline, uh, hungry from frazzles to foie gras, which is, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I have very strong thoughts on foie gras. So this isn't me saying that I love foie gras. It certainly is not. Uh, but it's it that that's the book it's about the journey um it's uh yeah it's 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 uh, i i wanted to talk about class mm. and this is also a veiled way of me talking pretty much in 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 a funny manner for you know 80,000 words about the working classes and the nuances in amongst all the in in the different the many many different forms of working class you know we are not we're not just one kind of big lump as right. sometimes is portrayed we're not you know it's very difficult to talk about the working classes because there's about 20 different types uh it's about whether i am middle you know i think most people will go oh, you're not even working class you're middle class well am i am i am i allowed mm. to be middle class now um are you ever really middle class when you don't have a maths GCSE and you've got like rows of silver fillings? And <laughs> are you, you know, you can run for a long time, but am I, I still had to go back. I still, you know, I can be as fancy as I want and, you know, start to know all of the ins and outs of the London restaurant scene. But I still had to go back and look after my dad and eat in Weatherspoons. And that mm -hmm. is... That's a very common thing for, for for thousands and thousands of people. You know, when you you go into Weatherspoons or you go into the Toby Carvery, right. you see lots of people who got a little bit above the station, like me, who's now <laughs> now in there. Uh, you know, eating or eating a scone in a garden centre at three o'clock in the afternoon because <laughs> they've had to go back and look after. You know, so uh, yeah, it's about class. I'm very. When I was a little girl, I used to love, Jilly Cooper wrote a book on class and uh, it was just, yeah, called Class. And mm. it was about the, you know, it's just kind of a lighthearted romp through all these different imaginary characters. And I always thought I would like to write something like that. And, right. uh, and I think I did uh, with, yeah, with added, with added, uh, added junk food. 
I write a lot about in the book about Asda. I seem to have become completely fixated in later life with Asda, which I think that, you know, completely revolutionised the way that my family ate from about 1987 onwards. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, like, that it clearly ties into a much bigger discussion in food criticism and the restaurant industry about, you know, Mm. could diversity be better? Could the representation be better? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that I think that although it's probably no comfort to anybody, I think that the 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 representation is probably getting better. It's definitely getting better if you looked at how it how it looked to me the landscape even 15 years ago. You know, I 10 years ago, 8 years ago, I couldn't have, well, 10 years ago, I, it was a massive coup that I felt personally that like I was allowed to be a restaurant critic. You know, mm. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white working class woman. It's I, but I, I, I thought, it, you know, it was, there was no diversity. It was a very set, very certain set type of person was allowed to say, I understand food. And the type of food they understood was, uh, French gastronomy and the reason they understood fr- French gastronomy is because they had childhoods where people understood French gastronomy yeah <laughs> so you know uh, I hope you know that things have been really really shaken up now I really I really do I I think that you know I'm, I'm very proud to work for The Guardian they have a really really good go every week of uh, letting people from all backgrounds write and all you know about all different types of you know all different types of cuisine they are I think that the Guardian are more switched on than possibly anyone in trying to get things right now you know trying to say you know it's not good enough to get the names of these things wrong or you know the the Mm -hmm. genesis of these dishes wrong so you know, I I think that I think that things are positive. Sometimes they may not feel like that way, but they are more positive than they were. Grace, your fifth and final book choice was Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Fleischman is in Trouble, I think, is one of the greatest American novels over the last twenty years. I it's up there with Jonathan Franzen, I think it's up there with Philip Roth. I it, it's just it's it's quite a, it's quite a long book. It's through the eyes of uh, a man who is almost about to file for divorce, and it's just a book about relationships and marriage. It's a, it's a book about marriage. I I'm f- I'm fully aware that. If you're maybe of an age and you've never been married or you've never even been in a, in, in a very long uh, cohabiting relationship, this book may well leave you cold. However, <laughs> I read this book, say, five or six years after getting divorced. And I thought, God, this book is just absolutely bang on about being in your 20s and being in a relationship and being in your 30s in your relationship and then ending up getting married and your dreams and what it's like and then what it's actually like and the process of learning about each other and learning each other's faults and then eventually you know getting divorced which millions of people all over Britain all over America they're all going through this and I think that this is just so acutely observed um, about putting your feet back in the dating game and how things have changed and what it's like to be you know in your late 30s or your early 40s to be suddenly back out on the market and like with all the different apps and god it's just a great book it's just and and for about the first three quarters of it it's through the eyes of the the wronged man Mm. and uh and he does a really bloody good job of convincing you that that, she, that that this awful woman's done all these awful things and then it obviously goes over to her side right. and, you, and then you go oh god 
look yeah I totally I absolutely get this I just think that you know the author just pulls it off she just pulls it I just wanted when I finished this book I just uh, I think I contacted her on Twitter like a mad fan just said this is just I just you know kind of you're amazing (laughs) she was very gracious she was just you know she was just like oh thank you it's just crazy I did I am just a huge fan of her so yes I was talking to a friend yesterday about this though and I recommended this to them and they recommended a little life to me Mm -hmm. and uh and we both hated each other's books (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I guess that just speaks to how subjective literature is, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's And again, this is why literature never gets boring, really. It's, uh, you can, you can be madly in love with something and it, it just, just leaves someone cold, mm. which is the most brutal thing. When you give someone a book and you love it, it's like you've given them a little bit of your heart. Right, Yeah. <laughs> And then they just say, this is crap, I didn't finish it. And you kind of, you're almost wounded thinking about this poor book that's like sitting discarded under their bed. So what does a really great book mean to you? Well, I think that a really great book becomes kind of part of you. It's part of your artillery. It's part of, it's, uh, you know, you've given it your time and it's, and it, and it's embedded in your head forever a really great book you know people go oh it's about escapism kind of sometimes it's not it's not escapism it's almost you know you're 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 letting the characters and the plots into your head and they're never going to leave they're there it's uh it's almost it's more like a transplant Mm. (laughs) sort of like possession really yeah Yes, absolutely. It's about um, broadening your broadening your brain, like waking up parts of your brain, waking waking up bits that you didn't you didn't even know were asleep. So, if you had to pick one book from your list as the one that you would press into the hands of your friends as your favorite, which one would it be? Uh, Station Eleven. I would I'd give people Station Eleven because like, for me. It, it had a, and this sounds like I'm going off on a tangent, but the same kind of feeling that I had with uh, Game of Thrones that, again, a genre that I would never have watched, you know, mm-hmm. just like, what? <laughs> dragons, dragons, and, a, you know, and a, I wouldn't know. And I felt like that. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's making me feel a thing, a thing that I didn't know that I felt. So, uh, yes, Station Eleven. I think she's got a new book coming out as well. Fantastic. Even even if we're all locked down again, I'm okay. There's a new Rose Tremaine and there's a new Emily St. John Maiden. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. You, it, it has been a joy. It's been an absolute <laughs> joy. I am going to... Uh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna eat some food. Yes, and lie on the sofa. Yeah, it's like I've heard my my stomach's been rumbling all the way through this. Well, we <laughs> couldn't hear it, so it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm Zing Zing, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. You definitely want to click subscribe please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard from today. And thanks very much for listening. See you next time.